Amen. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If it's your first time here at Randall today, uh, there has been a parade of leadership up here for a little bit. So I'll explain to you if you, if you don't realize what that is. Uh, Keith is one of the elders, and so he led through the, ba- the uh, uh, I said baptism, but there was no baptism. Were you ready for the baptism this morning? <laughs> through the membership, he talked us through that. Pastor Ben uh, talked us through uh, the small group and then our community groups. And then this morning, I am Milo, and uh, I am the church planting pastor out of, of Randall. We planted Renewal Church about two years ago. And so I get to come back and report on those things. And then at the end, Pastor Josh, the lead pastor, will be speaking and just giving you a, a snapshot of some of the announcements and things that are going on before going to the annual meeting downstairs. So there is a number of things happening this morning. And if you're a first-timer this morning, I know that that moves pretty quickly. And I just wanted to catch a few of you up as we go. I had the opportunity this last week uh, to go into Binghamton, New York, and do a church planter's assessment. I got to be part of the team who was assessing new candidates. There were 17 candidates uh, for church plants in New York State. Uh, and in those 17 candidates, I was an assessor in training of those 17. And so there was uh, 17 assessors and I think 17 uh, assessors in training like myself. And so learning how to go through this process. And it was, it's a healthy process because what you're doing is, and the, the person who was working with me said, what we're trying to do here is we're not trying to uh, define this couple or this person and say, you are good or you are bad or you have done something awful or you've done something great. That's our responsibility as assessors to hold up a mirror the best that we can and say, this is our evaluation. This is what we see you as. This is, this is the mirror. We're going to hold up a mirror for you. And even as we finish the assessment, the the job was uh, to, to hold up that mirror and then ask them, is this what you told us? Is this what you shared with us? Have you, do you feel like we are seeing you accurately? And so if we are, then we can make good decisions as whether or not you will be a good church planner or a good fit uh, for this world of church planting. One of the projects that they had the teams do, it was in Binghamton, and they gave them uh, four hours to work together as a team of 17 couples. They divided them into two teams of like eight or ten, and they had to plant, hypothetically plant a church there in Binghamton. They had to do their research. They had some of the teams called a realtor, and they found a building, and they were like, I'm sure that realtor was pretty confused after the fact when they didn't buy the building or even come by and swing by it later. Uh, But they went through the process of what it would look like to plant a church and Binghamton, New York. And the reality is, is when you take all that information that they compiled, the work that they did, now if there's a church planner who wants to go to Binghamton, New York, a lot of that work has been done. That data is there to be able to hand them. This is how you could plant a church in Binghamton, New York. But as they're going through that process, and, you, and as an assessor, I wasn't allowed to say anything. I had to stand to the side with a clipboard. It felt awkward. I felt like the Cheez-Its commercials, you know, where there's the cheese and the guy with the, the thing, well, not ready yet, like the check mark. That's what I felt like. It was an awkward spot to be in. We weren't allowed to interject at all. But you've got all these leaders, and they're interacting with each other, and they're trying to, to, to talk through what they believe is their firm assessment of how a church should be planted. And the person next to them may have an entirely different philosophy, but they had to work together as a team and figure that out. And there were times that they would turn back and look at us and basically said, can you give us some instruction? Like, can can you help us here at all? What are we supposed to be doing here? Can you help us? And we had to look back just as dumbfounded as they were because, no, we, we weren't allowed to help. We weren't allowed to get involved. And what happens there is you've got... Uh, an instruction manual would be helpful. Uh, but the reality is, is if you have an instruction manual, that can also be confusing 
as well. Uh, when you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's an instruction manual that, that Paul is giving to the church there. Uh, he is moving through some things. And, and if you were looking at an instruction manual, my wife and I, when we first uh, were started having kids, we got an instruction manual. And husbands, uh, if you want to make your wife proud of you, I asked her to read the instruction manual while I put it together instead of just throwing it together and hope that it worked. We put together the best crib you ever saw. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. It was put together exactly direction. All the steps were perfect. And that thing was awesome. The problem was is we watched TV while we uh, put it together. And so now we've got a crib beautifully put together in our living room. (laughs) And we had to disassemble the entire thing to get it down the hallway and around the corner into the bedroom. And so you can follow all the instructions and do it perfectly, but yet if your context is wrong, your context is wrong, we were in the living room and not in the bedroom, uh, for the the, the baby's bedroom, it it was still messed up. And so what Paul has done here, there's a letter that was written to Paul before 1 Corinthians. The 1 Corinthians in our Bible is actually his second letter. He is clarifying some of the instructions that he gave. Because they were using, in some ways, those instructions in the living room instead of in the baby's bedroom. Does that, does that analogy work for you? That the instructions were being followed, but they were being confused as to how they were being followed. It's a beautiful summer day today, or mostly a beautiful summer day, and it has been this weekend. Yesterday it was gorgeous. There's a few things that I want to do this summer uh, to just kind of take advantage of that. One of them... I've seen on uh, Funniest Home Videos. So if you see fun things, I don't know if it's appropriate to then take it home and try it at home because I may be the next person on Funniest Home Videos. Uh, But they take a watermelon and they put it out and then they take rubber bands. Has anyone seen this before? You take a rubber band and you may have to use 100, 200, 1,000 rubber bands. But if you put a rubber band around a watermelon, one by one, eventually the tension that those rubber bands create is stronger than the rind of the watermelon. And if you wait long enough, you get to be the guy, or maybe you get to wait until your brother or sister gets to be the guy that puts that rubber band on. It's just enough tension that that watermelon cuts in half and blows up into a thousand pieces. It's kind of like Russian roulette with a watermelon, okay? (laughs) Really what has happened here in the church at Corinth is that there has been an explosion. This is a messy church there has been a lot of things at play. The church started as that watermelon. It, it, was, it was doing pretty well, but there's a lot of influences. And all of a sudden, before he realized it, Paul looks back at the church that he planted, and there's an explosion. There is a mess everywhere. And if you've ever been in a situation with watermelon all over the room, picking up all the pieces and putting them back together is a nearly impossible task. And so what Paul is doing here is he's correcting some of the evils that exist within the church He's answering some questions from the church, and he's clarifying those previous instructions that he gave. So in doing that, as we look at this passage, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. As we look at this passage, we have to be careful to understand he's dealing with specific things in a specific time. He's giving instructions that are answering some questions that were being asked. And so to use the analogy from earlier, uh, we can't assume that if we follow the exact same instructions that we won't have built a crib in the living room. So we've got to look at this with those eyes and realize where he's coming from. But let's deal with some of the instructions that he dealt with as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. These are instructions for those who are married. Instructions for those who are married. If you're not married this morning, just wait. Don't check out. We've got something for you coming. But first we're going to deal with those who are married. 
The first instruction he's going to say is kind of a theme here is be holy. Be holy. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Because, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man must have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you were here last week and, and looking at this series, sexual immorality was something that was rampant in, in 1 Corinthians, in this Corinthian church. The city was a terrible place to raise a family for sure. It was a difficult place uh, to be in. And, and the reality was is there was a lot of pressure from the outside, just like that watermelon, to, to blow things up, to make a mess of things. But let's be certain that as Paul is saying it's good for a man not to be with a woman or touch a woman, he intends to qualify and correct what is happening. Uh, he is not anti-sex. He is pro-marriage. He is, he is actually teaching and developing a new theology that they were not used to. You see, Corinthians justified their sexual immorality in that it was happening in the body and it wasn't something that their soul was interacting with. Part of their worship customs in their temple that they would go to their pagan temple, part of bringing an offering to the temple was to consummate that offering with more than a thousand prostitutes that were there in the temple. That was how they did it. And there was this, this, this separation between what was happening within their body and what was happening within their mind or within their soul and their spirit. And so they needed to make those things, they need to make those things separate. There was arranged marriages that would happen that would be for land or for property or, or those type of things. And so a lot of times that wedding, that marriage between the two was, was purely a business transaction. And the men often would have a, a woman off to the side, a prostitute or, or worse, a relationship that had continued on and on and on because that was the relationship that they were interested in uh, and they separated those two. And so Paul is saying, be holy. Understand that this, this man, is you are supposed to have one woman. And the woman, you are supposed to have one man, as it's saying there in verse 2. He goes on, verse 3, he's making this point. Be wise. Verse 3, the husband should give his wife to her conjug conjugal rights. Didn't think I was going to say that this morning. Conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. How many of you are boaters? Like three of you. That's, that's awful. Okay. Lake Erie is an enormous place that has a ton of boats in the harbor. Now, none of them ever go out into the lake, but there's a number of you who own boats. And uh, so some of you find a friend and go out on the water every once in a while. But if you've ever tried to align two boats at sea or out in the water, uh, that's kind of what's happening here. Uh, there's, there's some rocky things going on, and it's difficult, even as we deal with this passage this morning, if you've got two boats out in the water and you're trying to line up to either step from one boat to the other, it is difficult if those boats are moving in opposite directions, and the choppier the water, the more difficult it is. And so let's be aware of that as we're looking at this passage, that there's some choppy waters here, and, and the more uh, damaged our marriage is, the choppier the waters are. And so you've got a husband and wife that are supposed to give authority to one another over their bodies. When I was in the Marine Corps, I, uh, I went out, I, I lived uh, near Hilton Head Island. Paris Island was the base that I was stationed at. And at Hilton Head Island, it's a beach town. And I went out and I got sunburned very, very badly. I blistered up and everything. And I found out, I was told that if I went to sick hall to get, uh, and missed work that morning by going to sick hall, I could be charged with destruction of government property for getting a sunburn bad enough that I couldn't come to work. 
destruction of government property. Now that's, that's crazy, right? Because this is my body, right? And if I burn it and I need to go and get ointment or whatever I needed, like, I should be able to do that. Well, maybe that's going too far, what the military does in, in that case. But the reality is, is that's the type, the type of relationship between a husband and a wife. The husband and the wife relationship where she can say to you, husbands, I own you. This is my body. I would like you to go to the gym every once in a while. It would be nice if you could see your toes. Like, that would be a good thing. And husbands, you're able to say to your wives, I really would like it if you would, you know, get a haircut. I would like it if you... A haircut. You don't call it a haircut if you're a woman, right? You, you go to the salon and, and all that. And you need to get pampered every once in a while. And, and you know, the, the gym shorts and the t-shirt just doesn't quite do it for me. And that's okay to say that. Why? Because there's an ownership that's mutual there that's going back and forth. And you need to be in relationship with one another to say those things to one another. Be wise. There's a book that I use anytime I'm doing marital counseling. It's called Love and Respect. Maybe you've heard of this before, but for, for the most part, men are looking for respect from their wives, and wives are looking for love from their husbands. And all day long, a wife can show love to her husband, and they miss each other because really, at the end of the day, he's looking for respect. And, and a husband can show uh, his wife respect, but not show her love and be loving to her, and they miss each other entirely. And the author talks about this as the crazy cycle. You can continue this all day long. You can try to show each other your affection for one another, but if you're not speaking the same language, uh, you're going to miss one another again and again and again. And then the flip side of that works in the opposite direction. That can be an energizing cycle if the husband who shows his wife love and the, and the wife who shows the husband respect. That is an energizing cycle that continues. Thirdly, what Paul is trying to teach here is be devoted. Be, be devoted to each other. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There are limited times where it's appropriate for a husband and wife not to be together intimately. There are a few times where it's appropriate, but he's saying there are also times uh, maybe it's not so appropriate. If the husband is going away for work for an extended amount of time, that's an appropriate time. That, that's what happens. If the wife is going through a tough pregnancy and, and she's on bed rest, at that point, it's not really the best time to be intimate uh, with your wife. Uh, if the marriage is bad, if the relationship is, is, is in a tough spot, uh, being in the bedroom may be difficult. It might feel like you're sleeping uh, with the enemy in many ways. There may be a reason to step aside, spend some time in counseling, spend some time in prayer, and, and work through some of those things so that, don't miss this, so that reconciliation can happen. Reconciliation happens, and that's what Paul is encouraging. If you can imagine uh, a husband and a wife uh, in the same bed, most husbands and wives sleep in the same bed, and, and at some point, uh, you've had an argument, you've had a disagreement, and that husband and wife suddenly don't sleep quite as close together in the bed that night as they did maybe the previous night. Uh, actually, they may be hanging at the very edge of the bed uh, at all. Uh, and what happens when that happens, uh, to use an allegory, is you are creating space for the devil to get between the two of you. You are creating space for the devil. You're giving him the opportunity to get in there, create temptation, bitterness, anger, neglect, hurt, rejection, devastation, destruction, 
leading to maybe even adultery or divorce. That's what happens when a husband and wife get divided from one another. So the principle in this pack, pack, excuse me, passage is important. There is nothing wrong, in fact, everything right about the bedroom, about having sex with inside of marriage. And yet at the same time, Satan's greatest strategy is to create opportunities where sex is happening outside of marriage or to have a marriage where they're not being intimate with one another in any way. Either scenario, the devil wins. Either scenario, he has divided this couple. It's an equal victory for Satan if he accomplishes either plan. So those instructions, again, for those of you who are married, is first, be holy. Second, be wise. Third, be devoted. You'll find a theme here this morning. Some of you are enduring through the marriage talk because this is not where you're at. So we got more verses for you. Uh, instructions in regards to divorce. Guess what? The first instruction is this. Be devoted. Verse 10. Verse 10. We're jumping a little bit. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge. Not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Again, remember, he is answering specific questions here. He's dealing with specific problems. And there in Corinth, uh, they were actually those who believed to be more Christian, to be more spiritual, that they should divorce their wives and step away from that marriage, that that would make them more holy by doing that. And what Paul is teaching here is for them to be devoted. The most godly thing that you could possibly do is stay in that marriage to show your devotion to her and your devotion to God. So much so, in verse 10, he says, uh, to be married, I give this charge. Uh, I'm giving this charge not out of my words, but of the Lord's words. This is the charge that he is giving. It is to stay together. Moving on to verse 12, be holy. Be holy. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. You see how he makes that separation? The first one he's saying, this is God saying this. God, the Lord is saying he's teaching this to stay together. But I'm going to give a little bit of commentary behind it is what Paul is saying here. I have some further instructions that are just coming from me. And so I'm sharing Paul's instructions with you this morning. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Thirteen, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Fourteen, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. The children, the spouse become blessed because the believing spouse is there in the home. Uh, many believe that this is coming from the Old Testament, coming from the teachings that we see the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant that they carried around with them through the wilderness? And they would carry this ark with them because as long as they had it with them, they knew that God was residing within their midst. And there was times when they would go into battle without the ark and they would lose. But there was times that they would bring the ark with them and they would win the victory that day. There were times that wherever that ark would reside, the, the house, the home, the family that was there was blessed because the ark of the covenant was there within their home. It was on their property. 
And in the same way, this, this allegory goes forward to look at if there is someone living in the home that is following hard after Christ, that the rest of the home is blessed because they are there. It, very, it rubs off on the rest of the family, on the spouse, on the kids, on the family, because that spouse is there and in the home. God blesses the home because of the holiness within it. Thirdly, for the divorce, those considering divorce, be wise, verse 15, be wise. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you could save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It is pointing out if the unbeliever departs, if they are leaving, let them leave. You can't chase after them. You're not going to force this. But how could they ever meet Christ if the believer leaves the home? If the believer's the one to step out of the relationship, how could they ever meet Christ? Now again, before you try to throw this into every scenario, every situation, because myself and every pastor here in Western New York is dealing with situations that are more specific than that, where it is dangerous for the spouse to remain in the home. Realize that again, Paul is dealing with specific questions here in Corinth and dealing with specific answers for them. But the theme can go forward from there. There are situations, there are times where it is dangerous for a spouse to remain. And Paul is not dealing with every situation here. Instructions for those who are single. For those of you who have endured the entire sermon to this point, okay, here we go. You are in good company. The single people here have endured this. You need to know that Paul is saying being single is also a gift. Uh, you're single and you're like, God, why have you held out on me? Why am I single still? You're in good company, okay? Jesus was single. And, and God didn't hold out on him. Uh, Jesus was not JV and those who were married are varsity players, okay? Jesus was single and he lived a full life, happy life. So the instructions will be very similar for those of you who are single. Be holy. Jumping back to verse 6 for those of you who are single. Let's all go there together. Verse 6. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. Again, he is pointing out. There are some things that God has directed to say, and there's some things that he is just teaching because he believes it to be true. Now as a concession, or now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. Beach has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Jesus lived a single, full, happy life as a single man. Paul lived a full and happy, and he, he pursued hard after God as a single man. Bottom line, if you cannot remain sexually pure, if you cannot, ha you need to hustle up, grow up, get a job, Take care of that wife-to-be and get married because that, that really should be your responsibility. In fact, some of you might need to get up now and go and do those things, right? If you cannot hold yourself and keep yourself pure, that's what Paul is saying. But there are opportunities that you need to consider. You need to be wise. Verse 25, let's go forward. Be wise. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. 
Are you bound to a wife? Don't tell my wife that I read this this morning. Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And he explains what he means, verse 29. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. For those of you who are single, realize that getting married might just further complicate the problems that you are in the middle of right now. And those of you who are married are nodding with me right now. You're like looking down the aisle at that college student down, like, did you hear what he said, right? Getting married doesn't make those problems go away. If you, if you cannot figure out how to handle your finances, realize that, that putting two people's finances together in the home is not going to make it easier. The world is a complicated place, and just getting married does not fix those things. Those thinking of marriage may want to rethink it, for time is short, is what Paul is teaching here. Time is short. There are things that need to be done for the Lord. Uh, marriage may not be in the best interest for those who want to serve the Lord. Why? Will your marriage help or hinder your service to the Lord? Can you serve the Lord better married than you can single? Those are the questions you have to work through if you are considering being married. Does this spouse, this potential spouse, do they have the same ministry goals as you? If you are going in two separate directions, if you believe God has called you to the, to the mission field, you're going to go and become a medical doctor so that you can go to the mission field, and the person that you are married uh, has no desire to leave uh, this country or this state or western New York at all, you're going to have some troubles that you're going to have to deal with. You had better think through those things now because you're going to need to deal with those things and realize that being married doesn't make those problems go away. It further complicates those things. Being married to this spouse, will that further your ministry goals? Will that further God's calling on your life, or will it hinder it? Be devoted. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That's what he's anxious about. 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, how his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided, what, devotion to the Lord. Paul was convinced that marriage under conditions that life was in Corinth could increase their troubles. He was teaching that he wanted to spare them from the anxiety and agony that the family responsibilities inevitably were going to give in Corinth, in that specific location, the pressures were going to be great to raise a family, to remain married together, and to not have uh, all these things trying to divide and separate their marriage. And so that 35 says it all, secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. For singles, I'll add one more. Be reasonable. Verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not a sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having a desire under control, has determined this in his heart to keep her as betrothed, he will also do well. 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. 
Ladies, there may be some of you in the room who have been in perpetual holding patterns for that man in your life who says, boy, I, I really want to marry you. I love you so much. Uh, let's set a date for 11 years from now, and I will be there. Understand the commitment. Be reasonable. If you were 20 when you met and she's walking with a cane now, it's probably time for you to move forward or step aside. Be reasonable about this. Commit or commit to being single. 39, we transition to instructions for those who are widowed. Just like in his church, there was all of these different groups within the church. All of those groups are here this morning. You understand that? You may have focused in on one of these sections, but there are those around you that are within another section. Instructions for those who are widowed. Be holy. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whoever she wishes, only in the Lord. There was a problem in Corinth, teaching that it was more spiritual for a widow to not remarry. And in that culture, it was particularly difficult. If a widow did not remarry, she had no way to take care of herself. And so she found herself destitute at times. And this, this teaching was saying it was more spiritual, more Christian to not be married, to remain a widow. And he is dealing with that. He says, now that you're a widow, be holy, be set apart for the Lord. That's what holiness means. Be set apart for the Lord. He says, you can remarry if you're remarrying a believer, but understand that there are some difficulties that come with that. Verse 40, in my judgment, she will be happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Paul does encourage her to remain single and devote her entire life to serving the Lord. He did not say it would be morally or spiritually better to do so. He just said that she may be happier if she does so. Overall, he is telling the widow to be devoted. Let me read both of those verses again. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but her husband dies. She is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord, being devoted. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. There are some that believe that Paul was a widower himself. That that's where some of this is coming from. Because he's saying, I too am single. He's saying, I too understand what it means. Yet he found his happiness and his joy by devoting his life to God's worth, work. That's where his worth was. His identity was found in Christ. His devotion to God means that he trusts the Spirit as leading him to give wise counsel. As it said in verse 40, I too have the Spirit of God. The Spirit is leading him, giving him wise counsel because of his devotion to God. So there are instructions here for each of these groups but there's also just instructions for all people in all churches, and it's found right in the heart of this text this morning, verse 17. Right in the heart of the text. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. You see, God created you in his own image. Live the life that he has assigned to you, not the life that he assigned to your best friend or the life that he assigned to your parents or the life that he assigned uh, the person that you thought you were going to marry, but maybe they're going in a different direction. You need to live the life that God has called you to, the purpose-driven life, the purpose that God has made you for, created you for, and breathe life into you. That's what you need to live. Live that life. He says, this is my rule in all the churches. 
And so as we are coming to a close here, let's look and see how he describes it to a different, to a different church. Colossians chapter 3. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. When he says, I'm speaking this to all the churches, he is. This was what he said in Corinth, and he says it a little bit more clearly in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Above all else, be you. Actualize your personal purpose. When I say actualize, it means actually do it. Actually live out your personal purpose that God has laid on your life. Churches can focus on singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Churches can focus on teaching. and Churches can focus on a number of things. But ultimately, we need to be a place where we are sending people out. We are empowering people to live out their purpose before God. Not the purpose that a leader or a, or a teacher within the church says, this is what you need to do. I was in student ministry for a number of years, and a lot of times you get to the point where that, that student is trying to pick a major in college, and they're just they're asking anybody, hey, what should I do? Just tell me what to do. And the worst thing that a youth pastor or a college minister can do is say, you should do this. Because they need to find out what their identity is in Christ, what their personal purpose is, and live that out. And some of you are in that spot this morning. You're going through a, a change in your life. Maybe you're transitioning. Maybe you've just walked through what it means uh, to be a married couple, and now you're the widower or the widow. And you're, you're starting to live that out. What does that look like? What is your purpose for your life? What has God called you to? And you're looking at the people around you and say, what should I do? And he's saying, you need to live out in all that you do. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The things that you've walked through in your life, the, the teachers that you've had, those influencers that you've had in your life are unique to you. And God has put you through those things for his purpose and his goal. And so as you look through a pretty complicated chapter here, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you can simplify it, do this. Simplify your life to the point where all you can do is serve the Lord. If you are married, can you, can you, you know, stop a little bit, all the soccer games, all the craziness, and I'm going through that right now, so I'm speaking to myself. Can you simplify that to a point where all you really are focused on is serving the Lord? If you are divorced or you're on the brink of divorce, can you simplify things to the point that I will find my identity in Jesus Christ and not in this relationship that is breaking and falling apart or be defined by a broken relationship? I will find my identity in Christ. Can you simplify things to that point? Can you simplify things, singles, to the point where you realize it doesn't matter where I go from here as long as my eyes are focused on Jesus Christ? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is what Paul is trying to communicate here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a messy church. There's a lot of pieces, a lot of parts that have come apart. But at the end of the day, Focus on Christ. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We pray this morning that it has rung true in hearts today. 
It's a passage that deals with really every situation in the room. And so we can't say that there was nothing in it for us today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 speaks to all of us. It's just a matter of whether or not we are willing to listen. So Lord, I pray that you penetrate hearts, that they would be willing to listen. Will you be willing to listen to the fact that God wants you to pursue him above all else? No matter how many variables there are, that is the constant. Christ is the constant. He is the North Star. Focus upon him, and all these things will be added unto you as well. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your church. Thank you for your congregation, your people who are here. Pray that that is our one desire today, to focus on you above all else. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.